Greetings and welcome to Inside the Master's Studio, a behind-the-screen look into the art of GMing. Today we are joined by Victor. Hello, pleasure to meet you. I'll speak to you, I suppose. I'd like to start from the very beginning. When did you first get involved with tabletop RPGs? Right, it was my early teens. I'd sort of been skirting the edges of the nerd world, uh, but I had a friend whose father was a like a, a real old school nerd. Actually, had like the full Gary Gygax beard. It was a really really nice guy. Uh, he was hardcore into role playing and board games and started to get into Warhammer. Um, and um, his son was sort of the the catalyst for role playing. Started spreading into my group of friends. Was the dad the first GM? Actually, not. Uh, I I know that he did. GM uh, or Dungeon Master games for my uh, my friend, but I and I've actually joined those. Uh, for me, the, the friend was uh, first GM. He brought the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons books over and uh, did a sort of half-assed campaign for us. How long did you play as a group for that? It was pretty short. It was um, I, th- I think the first campaign lasted just three or four sessions, and then I pretty quickly sort of took over, and uh, it wasn't long until we switched over to third edition, and I, well, yeah, I suppose, I'm not, can't quite remember the instinct that drove me, but I, um, I, I wanted to be a dungeon master, so I managed to uh, talk myself into that position, and after that I was more or less the only dungeon master for the group for quite a long time. Was the initial transition of power a peaceful transition? I think so. It was the, the overlap uh, of uh, his uh, group of friends and mine wasn't complete, so uh, it wasn't that big of a deal. I you know I talked a lot about being slightly bitter over always being stuck as the dungeon master, never getting to play my own character. I don't know if I ever actually was. When's the last time you played in a game? Not as the GM. That was... Hmm. I guess it was two or three years ago. Can't quite remember. It's quite an enjoyable campaign, actually. Is the group of people that you're playing with now the same group of people that you started with? I don't think there's a single person left, but it's been very much an on and off again sort of thing for the last 10 years, you know, more and more pressure of career and family stuff to uh, a lot of the friends in that group. So there's been some bad people going in and out, uh, and right now I think it's all new people. So how do you go about getting the group together to play? Well, I, I guess I do, I, I have a sort of library of friends that are, I, I know are vaguely nerdy enough. To, uh, like vaguely into role-playing games and I um, sort of uh, drop hints for them until I manage to wrangle up enough people. This time I was actually approached by uh, one of my friends who has uh, he, he fairly recently started to, to uh, actually met up with a, a long time I suppose it would have to be a, a long, uh, long-distance girlfriend from Canada who actually moved over to Sweden, and they've uh, moved together and become fiancés since. Uh, and they wanted to try out role-playing games. Uh, she had, she'd never tried pen and paper role-playing games. And they thought it would be a 
cool thing. How did you prepare for that game, considering that there was a first-time player in it? That game was actually the first time I uh, tried out the system uh, Dungeon World. Um, and in a sense, we were all very new to it. Uh, I, I did do some special preparation, or rather, I tried to sort of build the first sort of stretch of the adventure, the first, uh, first few encounters, as kind of a tutorial of what that system is capable of. But I also felt that Dungeon World as a system is intuitive enough and is sort of narratively driven enough that you can pretty much pick it up as you go along. Did she take to it fairly well? Yes, absolutely. It it was a real joy, actually, because, uh, well, for one, the tutorial part of the adventure utterly failed, uh, or not utterly failed, um, I planned out a, a sort of ambush with some traps and some uh, magic spells and that sort of stuff, but uh, the group immediately spotted the ambush and ambushed the ambushes, and uh, that sort of threw that out of the window, made it a more straightforward fight. But while they fought, um, the, the new player sort of talked to one of the NPCs that was around. Uh, she had a really fun social encounter, um, <laughs> drugged him with a sort of kind of friendship po- um poison that made him very much more collaborative uh, cooperative than he otherwise would have been, which added a, a cool sort of extra dimension to that encounter that would otherwise have been kind of a combat slog. And what were the inspirations for the story you wanted to tell for this group? I'd say one of the biggest inspiration, and it's something that I've Sort of a secret, not a secret source. The, uh, the one thing I've always wanted to uh, provide better to, uh, for my players, I never quite figured out, uh, to have a more character-driven story and to have the story be driven by the player character in a way that um, sort of feels dynamic. I got into role-playing games from computer games, in, in a big sense, um, and those games always have this big, and however you know wide they may be, however many choices they may have, they're always very linear. But I wanted them to be showcased, and that's, I've, I've sort of been trying to do that more through the structure of the campaign than I have through the, the story. The story in itself is fairly straightforward. There's a bad guy. Well, I could go into the story. It does get a lot more complicated than I'd like to give credit for. But um, actually, I do have one thing I've tried for this campaign that I'm really a fan of that I I could touch on shortly. Go for it. As an idea, it's basically uh, the the main structure I've built for this is that I mean I had the intro encounter, the intro section that introduced some of the major characters and got them to the city where they're uh, doing the adventure. To to give a little bit of context, it's a Dark Sun campaign but played with uh, the Dungeon World system, so it's sort of dark, grey morals, uh, the slavery, there's desert and death and destruction, arcane magic is super dangerous. There's a lot of backstory, but that's more of a backdrop to what's actually happening. But the main structure is that I have these sort of um, highlights or these main quests sort of encounters and uh, adventure sections, but interspersed between them, I've made room for... Um, 
the players to drive a story, and specifically the the or the the thing I've tried that I really liked so far is that it's as simple as I've tried to figure out the player that had the least natural, the least obvious role in the last adventure section. Uh, in the first, you had the uh, the rogue character, the sort of thiefy character who didn't fit that well into the combat section that sort of dominated the first uh, adventure part. And so I asked him afterwards, what kind of adventure, what kind of sort of session would you like to have next time? And he sort of went, well, I always kind of wanted to play a heist. And I loved that idea. And the next session became this huge sort of sprawling heist where they robbed uh, an elven noble family and they held the, the ball, big ballroom uh, with the social encounters there and trying to talk their way through it and they have the thievery aspects and the sneaking the stealth and it, it was really fun and after that section I asked another player who was the sort of desert cleric guy and he said he wanted to do a more traditional dungeon crawl session and I figured well cool and that's what I'm planning for the next so we, we cut early in the campaign but basically, try to find the player that had the least obvious role, or the character who had the least obvious role, and let them give you the seed for the next session. Once they've given you that seed, how do you prepare for the next session? The way I built this world uh, is very much inspired by um, uh, Friends at the Table, Austin Walker's sort of playing, but, but in particular, one of the parts that... Uh, well, some of those uh, podcast uh, chapters have been about the world building, and uh, at least some of those had a very strong focus on um, groups, on factions. And so that's a lot of the work I've done with this campaign. hasn't so much been with establishing so like fortresses and places and economies, but it's more been these are the power players, these are the kind of and sort of these are some a few characters out of each of these factions that may appear. These are sort of a few of the places that might be available in the world. And I feel like when once you have the factions available, at least the hope is, and it's proven true so far, uh, those are enough to provide the tension needed to have, well, a lot of encounters. The, the difficulty comes into naturally driving the characters to this next encounter. For example... Next, I'm going from from a heist to a uh, dungeon crawl. In order to make that transition and not have them run off and do something completely different, that part's going to have to be a little bit more on rails. So I'm sacrificing play agency in one sense to give player agency in another. Do you have any collaborative world-building sessions like Friends at the Table? Not for this campaign. It's something I'm interested in doing in the future. I don't know if they have done direct world building with people in this i know that they did a, a big session for this uh, the marielda adventures uh, but i got the impression that, well I, I think those were like different groups playing the game and diff uh, from the people building the world there's always the problem with because one of the things about friends of the table and i i love all that but there's always a detachment at least from my point of view that they are building a story together and sometimes they're also also living that story, but a lot of the time they are slightly detached from their character. They want to make a fun story with the characters. They're not necessarily always doing it from the character's point of view. Uh, and I feel like that's that that sort of disconnect is, would possibly be 
even more troublesome because you take away the magic. Like if the if the players are there building the world with you, then it'll feel less magical to them because they can see the bones, like they can see the actual parts of it in a way that's could be really fun, but would also risk reducing the immersion. At least that's my fear. In keeping with that immersion, do you try to keep table talk and metagaming to a minimum? That's also a, a tricky part. I, I felt that we've been good at this with uh, good at, uh, with this group of players, but I feel like that's sort of a personal chemistry uh, issue. And also, like one of the really difficult parts, which we've managed admirably in these last few sec- sections, is interplay role-playing, uh, which always has always struck me as one of the hardest parts to do and to make feel natural. Um, but... I don't know. I, I don't have a good recipe for that. I think it's the hope is that if you make the if you have the game be snappy enough and if the if you can play it at a pace that's good enough, that ceases to be a problem. It's more a symptom than the the problem itself. Do you have any go to strategies to keep the game from pausing too long or getting slogged down? I guess. Uh, the way I've been doing that, and the way sort of Dungeon World in particular tries to drive that, is that essentially, if if there's ever a lull, if there's ever players looking around, like trying to figure out what's happening, that's where I, as the GM, step in and amp up the action. That's where where I do a move. That's where sort of the enemies try to surround them. That's where a danger appears out of nowhere. Um, but also, but I also felt that there's, there's a risk in that because if I'm not deliberate enough, uh, I might skim over important details. I might, I've noticed that I might uh, try to improve the pace and in doing so miss details that I really should have given the players in the moment. So it's it's a give and take. Like you, I think you need to allow yourself to have awkward silence. I think that should that should absolutely be allowed because you can't just keep keep the ball rolling or at least most people can't uh, so when you're writing the story and building the world, how do you build NPCs? Recently, I've been um, using random character generators, actually. Or rather, I've been using uh, a very basic seed. Uh, I've used uh, For this dungeon, uh, uh, this Dark Sun campaign, I've used a cyberpunk name generator, which I've enjoyed, um, because it gives names that are just strange enough without feeling classical fantasies-esque. Uh, and then just rolled around. Um, I've, um, I've seen in, um, in the Dungeon World manual itself, there is a sort of, uh, these are the instincts of a character. Well, these are 100 instincts of a character. These are 100 uh, per, like uh, special abilities or special talents of a character that you can roll, and sometimes that's enough. Sometimes you want a very basic description. Description. Sometimes I want a uh, another character they're related to. There's no hard and fast answer, but I I often feel like um, adding using some kind of random character generator, some kind of detail uh, that I did not create allows me to see something new about the character and can act as a sort of point of inspiration to build from. Do you ever make the party come up with identities on the spot? For characters they meet? I've thought about doing that, absolutely. And I, that's 
will absolutely occur if they um actually yes that is something that's come up um in the case where well one character was part of the mafia and he had some contacts in the city uh, already and he got to decide who those people were and that's a it is actually a very fun moment where you go like oh you visiting the uh, the orphanage uh talking to your contact there what do they look like like what kind of person are they uh, sort of flip that coin on them do you tend to fudge dice rolls in the favor of the party for fear of not wanting to kill them and make them lose interest in the past i occasionally have but i i try very hard not to i i'm generally not in favor of uh, fudging dice rolls because i but that, that's also a system issue i feel comes down to sort of what what the what happens if the characters fail uh, and it's al- always an issue when it comes to uh, say skill checks like breaking down a door or hanging on to the edge of a uh, an airship or any kind of issue with that like that when one choice is so obviously less interesting like one outcome is so obviously less interesting or so sort of disruptive to the narrative that's kind of a problem in the that's a problem of design or problem of the, the like I'm getting to that point in a problem is a problem in itself uh, or a problem of a system where that can't be a fun uh where there's not a fun uh, outcome for them failing. Uh, and, well, you know, in, in Dungeons and Dragons, I had the issue where the, the game itself of people fighting, the balance of number of enemies versus number of players, what happens if one player takes a bad crit at the start and just eats it? Does that mean I have to total party kill them? It's really, no, it's, it's, it's tricky to deal with. Um, but I try to let the dice speak to themselves because that random element can be so interesting. Having the stakes be real is really important to me. What was the last player character death that you had to deal with? That's a difficult question. Um, I have been remarkably soft on my players when it comes to death for, for quite a long time. Uh, I know that in those early campaigns we had a few deaths. I know the monk character died a, a couple of times. Um, and in most of those scenarios, uh, the death meant little more than uh, than a resurrection. Um, and, uh, and like I say, uh, I, I have been <laughs> possibly too too soft on my characters since. So how do you keep them invested in the story if they get a sense of invulnerability? That is the thing. I, I, it's, it's interesting, actually, and, and that's so much uh, an issue of uh, player perception. Uh, because when I, I say I'm very soft on my players, but I've had players say the absolute opposite and say that every fight is grueling and lots of sort of a skin of a teeth, but in an unpleasant way that they, like, because if you'd think that's the, the goal, uh, in a sense, uh, to have them feel like they're, they're always at the edge of, of failing, but managing to overcome. Uh, but I think that's sort of a problem of pacing that I've found. Um, looking back on how I've designed encounters uh, in games that are more board game heavy, I think I've skewed too far towards having every fight be a challenge, be even, when in fact 
there should be mounting tension and there should be fights that are easy to give some sort of relief at least between these fights like every fight doesn't have to be life and death every fight shouldn't be life and death that having every fight be pretty much even in uh, the the challenge curve be even removes tension even if it's high and even when you would play dungeons and dragons did you track xp or did you go with feel we generally tracked xp um and that's part of how i i suppose i um uh, justified having challenging combat encounters and having and the players having a high power level and caring about their characters sort of combat uh, ability meant i could throw more enemies at them which meant they progressed faster they got more xp which in the sense of looking at the game as a board game as a game of of numbers that was that seemed satisfying to uh to both them and me in hindsight sort of that was uh, to me at least a problem in not thinking thinking more about the uh, the dice than the story do you prefer the way that dungeon world handles it i do uh but i think i i could achieve what I'm trying to do with Dungeon World here, with a lot of other systems, including Dungeons and Dragons, uh, yeah, I think it's more a change of attitude from from me uh, trying to look at the game in a in a different way. And, and, and a lot of that has come from listening to, say, the Adventure Zone and uh, um, and Friends at the Table, and listening to a different kind of roleplaying. Would you rather? DM for Austin and Griffin, or would you rather play in one of their games? Oh, that's difficult. I think I, I'd enjoy both. I think I might enjoy DMing more for them. Uh, I, I don't want to. I don't want that to sound like a, an ego thing, even if it, though it probably is. Uh, but those are two terrifically funny guys, and I feel like they would more than pull their weight, and it'll be a very collaborative thing. And I feel I'd, I'd like uh, <laughs> getting the privilege of being at the helm or something like that. Do you generally prefer to keep your games uh, more lighter tonally? They tend to be, um, and that's... that's It's a tricky thing. The, the, the role-playing aspect of it is always a tricky thing. Uh, because it's asking a lot to expect players to actually like suffer through uh, sorrow or suffering and seeing suffering and seeing really heavy, awful stuff, because it is so easy to just disconnect from that. Uh, and to, for that not to hit, for that to be poorly delivered by me, it's the more drama you add into a story, the more difficult it is to, to deliver. Comedy is easy because you're among friends. You might even have alcohol on the table. While drama is tricky. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to include more drama and this game will involve heavier elements. Like the, the current campaign I'm running, it's going to involve heavy stuff. And it's. I'm very interested to see how that will end up hitting, uh, will end up uh, working out. But it's tricky. Uh, it's really tricky. What does your current group do in order to get into character? Hmm. We haven't had any kind of real warm-up, to be honest. Uh, 
there's, there's been a sort of brief uh, summary of the latest session. I think one of the things that's been really helpful for me and also my fellow players is that since one of the players is from Canada, we are currently playing with uh, what's playing the game in English. And that's helpful in a couple of ways. In one way, it is a way to sort of gain distance from your normal self. Um, but it's also... There is a sense of coolness about English uh, that isn't that we don't really feel with our own native with Swedish, um, and having all the terms, having all the having all the parts of the game already be in English and suddenly be speaking that language and be speaking a language that is not your own, it's really helped. It helped me get into character, and it's helped me try to do voices in a way I don't usually do for these. Well. I guess I should say not as naturally do for these games. So it's almost like you are speaking Elvish. Yeah, I've, and I've actually, <laughs> embarrassingly, uh, we played through. Um, let's see, Abbey of Godmo Alley. Uh, no, something of Godmo Alley. One of the um, pre-built adventures, uh, and that. Uh, Playing through that pre-built campaign, so many of the names, so many of the characters were named in English uh, that I sort of made up the uh, stupid excuse that English is just the ancient language of that region. So, so for us to not feel weird about like trying to translate all of these strange names, just, yeah, everyone, everyone pretty much knows this strange arcane language English that is occasionally told in this, uh, this region of the world. But yeah, sometimes you uh, had to make dumb excuses for weird realities. Do people talk in character? Generally, th th that's kind of a mix. Um, so far, it's been it's worked out well. Where there's rarely confusion whether someone's talking in character or out of character, but there's never been any strict demands on not talking out of character. And how has the new player been doing for role playing? She's been doing really good. She's uh, really like, and she's uh, been talking to, like, she's been um, engaging with other characters. And in a way, that's very natural for a character as well. She's she's playing as a, a bard, which isn't necessarily as much focused on the social aspects as it is in other games. Just being Dark Sun, the bard is more of an assassin than a socialite or a, an entertainer, but still with a lot of elements of um, entertainment. And um, yeah, she's used her character well, and she's used poisons really well. Uh, there's this really fun ability that bards have in... Uh, I don't know if they have that in regular Dungeon World, or if that is a Dark Sun character edition, uh, but it's called Charming and Open, where you're, if you're having a fairly... I, I, I guess kind of house ruled it to be that the conversation has to be at least somewhat open when they use the ability, but as long as they're having a pleasant conversation with someone, they can ask them one of a series of questions, or possibly even pretty much any question, and they have to answer truthfully, because the body is so charming and open. The cost being the NPC then gets to ask them a question in return, which might be, who are you really working for? Or, like, what are you doing here? Which obviously had... Well, implications in the heist, uh, making making a really interesting choice when you want to use it or not. Did your group of players have free range to pick character classes? 
free range. Yeah. And I did that because I knew I wanted to have this open structure of the campaign, which meant that I could sort of balance the amount of combat that they get hit into by the makeup of the of the party. If they'd picked only spellcasting and uh, sort of thievery social classes, I would have had to tone down the combat and have. Did you have a session zero where everybody built their characters together? Essentially, yes. Uh, we did build the characters uh, together, but that was also the intercession. It was actually quite... like We've been astonished how much we've been able to achieve during the sessions we've had uh, because we built the characters and played an opening session that's still included two really like two big combat encounters uh over a total of four hours and then we've had like yeah big sprawling sessions in four to five hours time um but yes i I it's not necessarily always important but it was important in this case because i wanted there to be bonds i wanted there to be a connection and I, i usually i've started skewing towards having or at least asking my players to uh, to have a built party from the get-go. To not have the first session be characters meeting up and somehow trying to build a party out of these completely disparate elements, uh, which can also be quite awkward, I've found. But rather to have the group be a unit from the start. A unit with cracks and flaws and like not all friendly uh, relationships, but at least have some reason to be working together and have been working together for some time. Is there anything that you can specifically point to from Friends at the Table or the Adventure Zone that you've folded into your own GM style? There is, and it's something that I'm not really good at yet, but but I'm trying to get better at, um, and it's uh, from from, from Austin Walker, uh, and I might be from the systems more, but, but like, what does that look like? asking them what they're actually doing um, and having uh, I'd like there to be I'd like the players to be able to feel like they can suggest anything any action anything that in any way makes sense to them they can suggest and they can say well I want to like do a kickflip off this cart and throw the poison or something completely outlandish and we can work something out as long as it works narratively to fit into the game but also to encourage them to not just look at the character sheet and see a move, but rather say, describe what they're doing, describe their action. And that's something I feel is really important to have the characters be part of a narration, not just be players of a game. And is there anything that you've seen them do that you specifically avoid doing? That's tricky as well. If it makes you feel any better, there's almost a 0% chance they'll ever hear this. <laughs> no, that's fair. Um, nothing I can think of off the top of my head. I have at times felt that uh, Griffin has sometimes been a little bit too eager to push his solution to a problem on his players. Uh, rather than let them give them the time to work it out by themselves. Uh, so providing the pieces of a puzzle and then sort of asking them to put them to like telling them how to put them together. But, eh, it's a small criticism. So how do you build your 
puzzles or encounters in order to facilitate player solutions. That's a tricky thing. And also, it doesn't have to be... Like, it doesn't... It can be my solution. Uh, the players just don't have to feel like they haven't been pushed into uh, into doing it. Uh, the, the, the most important part is giving the feeling of... Uh, agency even when there is none but also i i do try to be vague and i try to be flexible uh one problem that i've had earlier in my dungeon mastering um trying to work away from is the idea that there has to be this one solution to a problem but like an example the heist adventure uh there was a vault and the vault needed some particular equipment in order to be opened uh, the players never figured out that there was a vault before they started the heist. And that might have been a problem that needed a solution in that, like, either they'd get to the vault and find, oh shit, yeah, it's, it's a vault, we can't actually get in. Um, but that wasn't interesting. So, instead, there were other challenges, there were other things waiting for them, other, and also adjust other challenges as the game goes along. Um, uh, allow, the narrative, like the the puzzle I'm providing, isn't necessarily the puzzle that the players are trying to solve anyway, because not everything I'm providing, not everything I'm saying, gets across. They might see a different room than I'm describing, uh, or that that I have in my head. I might describe a different room than I have in my head, but it's more important that they get a satisfactory solution to the problem that they're imagining than that I sort of feel right or feel vindicated in sitting like writing my stupid puzzles and. Uh, planning my stupid rooms. Uh, so just accepting the player's reality of the game as the real reality or the important reality is, I suppose, the way I, I try to solve that. Do you have an ending in mind for this story? I do. Uh, and I, it's, it's a problematic thing, actually, uh, the ending of the story, because it's quite... Uh, apocalyptic potentially um i wasn't sure how much uh, it's a sort of a magical ritual or a magical plot uh, that they'll hopefully be able to uncover and sort of work work towards uh, stopping before it happens because if it happens sort of the city is gone but how that happens no that had it i want to leave that open because it's going to depend on the the factions, the the players have allied themselves with, and how they built the characters, and how they, what they spent most time on. Uh, so I'm possibly too ambitious in that I'm hoping that the particulars of the ending of this campaign will crystallize as the story goes along and sort of echo their actions along, rather than have the story be disconnected from the happenings of the campaigns, as would be the case if I had a really solid, really strong idea of uh, the the whole ending sequence. So yeah, shit's gonna go down, people are probably gonna die. It's not completely. It's not written in stone, no. Is it written in such a way that should the group suddenly be unable to gather anymore, that you would be able to enact it? Oh, that's interesting. Um... I don't know if you have the same problem of groups breaking apart before they finish absolutely and i in my case uh i it's often been a it's been an almost systemic problem uh, in how i've tried to build worlds and build campaigns that 
that I built them in the way that uh, I see role-playing role games, sort of, sorry, computer games built. Uh, you have these rather slow build-up, and you have so you have all these arcs, and you have all these characters development, but it's it's a slow, lumbering, like meandering process uh, that then hopefully sort of coalesces into some really cool end-game action at the end. In this case, I've tried to go full on from the start. I've tried to have the characters be in cool situations from the start, sort of build it more as a movie than as a a PC game. Because a movie is far easier to finish. It's not going to be a breezy, like it's already uh, quite long. It's not going to be a breezy two to three hour experience, or I guess one and a half to three hour experience in the case with a movie. But uh, I want it to be far quicker, far shorter than most of the campaigns I've planned out to give the players a chance. Because you want the players to want more when it's finished. So I'm hoping that I'll be able to deliver on that. But uh, but to answer your actual question, I don't think I would... I don't think I could see the end of a story without the characters, because it wouldn't be the end of the story. Uh, as soon as the, the, the players get involved, it's kind of it kind of doesn't... It's not up to me anymore where the story ends. It's become collaborative to the point where it wouldn't make... I, I could sort of sit down and try and figure out where things would go, and hopefully I'd have a clear enough image of the the characters in the game to figure out where they might go but it's the playing of the game that is the achieve the achievement and the fulfilling of the story it's it's not a an on paper thing for me of all the games you've played over the years how many would you say have had an organic ending a few of them. That, that depends on if you look at separate arcs or if you look at sort of a, a full campaign. But we've actually we finished a few campaigns in the in the years, uh, and then kind of kept going with something else. Had a change of DM or a change of world or a, just a go, going from normal re- level to epic level or whatever. Uh, but I guess like one in three or something, rather low number. A lot of them just sputtered out because. It's so easy to lose momentum. Just have a, a couple of people be away for a couple of weeks, and after that, it just never gets going in. Do you have any NPC or item or location that you've carried over to every world? Not every world. I, I've had a really stupid... Um, not exactly a character, but rather a, a name, Lennart, who has followed the characters around for quite a while now, to the point where sometimes there's a group of NPCs where a few of them have this dumb name. Uh, but no, um, I, I tend to... The, the campaigns tend to be so different, and they tend to take place in such different worlds that it wouldn't make sense to have recurring characters in that sense. Uh, I, I'm never quite satisfied with sticking to any one place. Uh, for long, and I've never been really happy about Forgotten Realms or Greyhawk or the the, the, the real vanilla Dungeons and Dragons worlds. So you mostly homebrew these settings? Yes, to some degree or another. What's your process for creating a world? That's changed as well. Um, I I usually find that you don't need a lot, and I've also been I've loved the the idea uh, presented in Dungeon World of sort of have a map but leave blanks. That's it's a really 
there's power to that and there's power to having being being able to ask and that's i guess where you go, where you come to uh collaborative world building to be able to ask your players sort of what do you think's out here or like what's the world like where you come from what's your city like what kind of factions might be after you to allow players to have and to allow, to allow the world to develop in a way that's useful to the story as the story comes along and also to uh, leave enough blanks so that you don't really paint yourself into a corner. Do you have any mementos or tangible souvenirs from these worlds? No, unfortunately not. I guess I'm, I'm not attached enough to my worlds in that sense. I'm not, I'm not the person to uh, spend... In fact, I'm, I'm actually... In some sense, I'm a. I'm not going to call myself a bad DM, but I'm. I'm a strange DM in that. I enjoy the story aspect. I enjoy the building of the worlds, but in some sense, I still look at it like as homework, and do as little as I feel is needed for the game. For me, the the game is the the storytelling aspect, and I, I build a skeleton outside of it. But I don't spend hours and hours and hours poring over tombs and writing out long story aspects. Uh, I, I don't. The, the world is not that solid. Uh, my worlds aren't that solid. They are mostly a magic trick. They're mostly me, me making just enough so that the rest can just materialize as we play. A movie set, if you will. Yes. Yes. In a sense. Well, we are going to start wrapping up, but before we do, I'm going to ask you some questions from the PIVO questionnaire, pioneered by Bernard PIVO. All right. What is your favorite word? Hmm. Doesn't have to be English. I should have a really good answer for this, but I might not. Let's see. I like friend. Friend's a good word. What is your least favorite word? Well, it's a rude word. There's a few very rude words that share the the top there. Uh, if I were to go to something that's somewhat safe for work, let's see. Uh, you don't need to worry about safe for work. Well, I guess I'm not a fan of the word whore. To put it mildly. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? I really like when a conversation, uh, when I realize that someone's been dropping great hints for quite a while, smiling all the while, and I've only just realized what they're doing. Um, that's incredibly vague, and I'd, I'd see if I can find a, an example for it, or if I should just try again. You couldn't see it, but I just winked at you. <laughs> Thank you. Let's see, could I, do I have anything more poignant? poignant? Uh... I know you said it feels more like homework to you, but is there any time where you just get into the zone with world building or lore crafting? 
Yeah, I guess what I like the most story-wise, and yeah, it is something that's been happening quite a lot this latest campaign, is when someone else has an idea, an idea for a character, a place, or more, most interestingly, uh, a flaw or a mistake or a danger that elegantly fits into the world I've already built. Like when one of the, the current players sort of figures out that yeah, it would be interesting if he'd done a mistake, if he'd started a fight he really shouldn't have, uh, being a part of the Mafia. And it just, Chris, like, I just suddenly realize which faction he's had this fight with, what the outcome was, what the outcome's, like, is still spiraling into, how that fits into the world and how that creates a spark for a conflict down the road. When something just, when someone tells me something, I realize that that's already happened in the world. What turns you off? When someone fails to try, even try to engage with an idea or with a character with a world. Uh, when the... Well, a lack of patience, I suppose. It's sometimes... There's sometimes an unevenness in, in a group where, where one player just doesn't want to be there. And that's that's hard for me to uh, to build around and to uh, to work through. What is your favorite curse word to hear from your players? Hmm. Hmm. I, I love any curse word for my players because it usually means that I've surprised them in a fun way. So any of them works. What sound or noise do you love? I love dice rolling. Any particular sided die? Oh, hmm. Well, any but the, D, the D4 is a pretty terrible for me. I was going to say, I'm not crazy about the D4. Yeah, no. Not great. Now, I think I think D10s might be the best. D10s or D12s. What sound or noise do you hate? A lot of sounds. Do I have any in particular? Let's see. Pretty much any kind of screaming, really. What game system would you like to attempt? Oh, that's a good question. I, I've been interested in having a serious go at uh, Call of Cthulhu. But I'm not sure that would be the best system suited for, I suppose I should say, any kind of game. But I like the idea of it. What draws you to it? The idea of having a madness system that's core to the game and the from my understanding the idea of having the players be woefully underprepared for pretty much anything they might face in the world what game system would you not like to attempt fatal that's a recurring theme <laughs> yeah i can imagine so uh i i, I wouldn't want to go back <laughs> yeah i suppose oh The thing is, I liked Dungeons & Dragons 4th Edition in some senses, but I don't think I'd want to go back to it. When your game concludes, what would you like to hear from your players? 
I want them to still be in the world in some sense. I want them to be thinking about what happened, both in the sense of their characters and where it might go next. I kind of want us to have to take some time to get out of this world. Thank you for joining us in the Master's Studio today, Victor. Thank you for having me. I've been your host, Moon Rules, and remember, if you're having writer's block as a GM, your players are your greatest asset.